All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Brandon Odo, uh, and we are back again with the Critical Care Scenarios podcast. This is going to be episode four. And as always, I'm back here with Brian Bowling. And uh, we're going to be doing something a little bit new as well. In the past, you've just seen Brian and I um, going back and forth and kind of giving each other a hard time. But um, at the end of the day, um, I know you guys don't care all that much about what we think, but I think you might care what our guest today thinks. So we're going to have with us uh, Philippe Rolla, who you may know, he's been uh, around the the foam universe a little bit. You may have seen him writing on the MCRIT website or elsewhere, but he's a, an intensivist uh, by way of internal medicine um, up at St. Cabrini in Montreal. Um, he had a lot of interest in point of care ultrasound, uh, particularly focusing on kind of fluid assessment and venous congestion. Um, and we're hoping to get his uh, his approach to some sick patients today. So, Philippe, welcome. Thanks very much, Brandon. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, now that we're done being nice, I'm going to give you a, a patient who might as well be a real patient. Um, he's a 60-year-old male. So you're working in the uh, ICU, and you get a call from the emergency department. And they say, listen, um, this gentleman came in. He's got a, a history of hypertension. Um, he's had a, a prior stroke, not a lot of deficits from that. He does have known CHF, so he had an echo some months ago. Um, his EF then was 50%. He had grade two diastolic dysfunction um, and moderate tricuspid regurgitation, but generally in fair health. Uh, but the past few days, he's been having some right upper quadrant pain. Um, there was some fever he's been noting subjectively, some nausea and vomiting, all just getting worse until he came in today. So on his initial labs down there, they noted a leukocytosis, um, and they were just worried, so they got a right upper quadrant ultrasound. And on that, they saw a dilated, thickened gallbladder, pretty suspicious for cholecystitis. So he goes directly to the operating room, and he undergoes his cholecystectomy, which is great. However, um, it ends up being a somewhat challenging operative course. As soon as they open the abdomen, they find the gallbladder is actually ruptured, um, and he's significantly hypotensive. So during the case, uh, he's repeatedly getting bolused, and he ends up receiving a total of about four and a half liters of crystalloid, uh, as well as 500 cc's of 5% albumin. Uh, for pretty much the entire case, he's on a phenylephrine drip. And uh, they finish up down there, they leave him intubated, and he comes to you in the ICU um, on antibiotics, of course. So when you come across him and do your initial assessment up in the unit, yeah, you note that when you auscultate his chest, he has just diffuse inspiratory crackles. Um, you shoot a chest x-ray, and there's just kind of generalized vascular congestion. Not absolutely horrible, but pretty frank. Um, dynamically, he's right now has a map of about 65, and that's on 0.5 uh, mics per kilo of phenylephrine. Um, and on the ventilator, he's just on volume control, um, a 60% FiO2. The peep is, peep is 5 and on that, he has an oxygen saturation of 94%. So, Philippe, just kind of right off the bat here with this patient in front of you, um, are there any thoughts you're having, things you'd want to get rolling, any uh, other information you want right up front? Of course. So I'm going to rewind you a little bit and, and put a little slant on that. So someone else must have auscultated and done an x-ray because that's not how I start. Um, I mean, I occasionally use a stethoscope for family meetings to look more doctory. But otherwise, I think they're just delay uh, to diagnosis. 
Um, so my first thing as he gets rolled in would be to put the probe on him and put the hands and probe on him. I want to feel if his skin is warm or if he's cold clammy, what's going on with that, what's going on with peripheral perfusion. You know, if the ultrasound machine is not already on, then I'm going to be doing a cap refill and see if I've got a fast refill. And to make my idea whether this hypotension pressure dependency is more of a, a vasodilated state or more of a, a you know, a, a poor outflow, whether it's got to do with, uh, with cardiac output uh, due to cardiac dysfunction or to uh, hypovolemia per se, you know, relative or, uh, or um, otherwise. So that's how I'm going to start. Well, so let's say that um, you, you take a look at him and he is peripherally uh, warm. His cap refill is about two seconds right now. Um, he is, uh, you put the ultrasound on him and what you note is that his um, left heart looks um, mildly hypokinetic. The EF is perhaps 40, 45%, which is fairly consistent with what his... I'm going to pause you again. I'm going to pause you again because I'm not going to start with the heart. That's kind of going to be the last part I look. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with looking at the IVC um, because that's right off the bat is going to tell me whether I hit stop on the IV fluids um, and it's going to guide me a little more because the, you know, you're... LV function could be up, could be down, you know, that's more, that's, I think, more relevant if really you were completely normal before and now it's acute, but I, we knew he was already a little down. So at this stage, unlikely that that's going to give me a decision point that I'm going to go one way or another, um, but the IVC might. Interesting. Now, let me, before I tell you what you'd see, um, what do you expect to see? This guy is uh, f- about five liters positive after this kind of, you know, intra-abdominal catastrophe. Do you expect that you're going to find him to be kind of fluid replete as far as the IVC looks or no? Um, I would guess that he would be a bit more on the fullish side, but I've been surprised it could be any direction, to be honest. Okay. So if he's just very much... Um, kind of leaky, leaky in his capillaries, he may be intravascularly dry, even though he's received a fair amount of fluid. Well, I would say that he doesn't even have to be intravascularly dry. He just has to be venodilated. And that's why I want to feel if he's warm and what his cap refill is like. So the cap refill that you're telling me with a warm patient and a slow cap refill goes with someone who's vasodilated and has a poor cardiac output a little bit more, if you see what I mean. If you've got, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got someone with great cardiac output, they're very vasodilated, they're warm, they're hypotensive, but their cap refill is actually pretty quick because there's low SVR, you know, it's it's going in. So tell me what the IVC looks like. So you you put the ultrasound on it. I should tell you that the ultrasound is broken or something. That would be great. No, um, <laughs> you look at his IVC and it's, it's, it measures at about 23 millimeters. Um, and it looks plethoric. There's very little respiratory variation. Okay. So uh, at this point, it's time to stop any fluids infusing. Okay. So you turn off some drips that came up there. So then I go on to my, my VEXUS scoring. And uh, for those who have not come across this, the VEXUS is a scoring criteria of venous congestion using solid organ Doppler. Uh, looking at the hepatic veins, portal veins, the renal vasculature, and of course the IVC. We'll put some links and resources in the show notes here if it's new to you. Folks, we actually had a break in the audio recording here, so just to fill you in, when the VEXA study is performed, the hepatic veins show an S wave that's less than the D wave, and the portal veins show pulsatility. 
So Philippe decided that it was an indication that the patient would benefit from diuresis and explained that in a case like this, the vexus is really telling him whether the patient is merely fluid overloaded, which is pretty apparent, but in a relatively benign way, or whether that fluid overload is really to a degree that's causing harm by way of venous congestion. Okay, back to the recording. If you found that your blood pressure fell as you began to diurese, what's your move going to be there? Um, well, I'm going to, anytime there's a change in hemodynamics, I'm going to look at the whole system again. So I'm going to look at the venous side, I'm going to look at the right heart, I'm going to look at the left heart, what has happened. Um, and, you know, I would be really uh, surprised or shocked to, after pulling off a couple liters of fluid, that this particular patient's you know, IVC would have gone to being completely non-plethoric, but it's not impossible. Um, so I would look at that. And if it is um, no longer plethoric, I'm going to also look for a source of bleeding. Um, make sure he didn't lose that volume somewhere else. And I'm going to look at the both right and left heart and see if there's been a, an interim change in either side's function to explain. And again, put hands on the patient again and see if, you know, patient still, you know, got another rush of cytokines and he's, uh, you know, really hot and vasodilated or if he's cold and clamped down. So you would certainly not expect uh, it to be an kind of normal or predictable response that there would be a real change in his blood pressure just from taking off some fluid, given what you know about his vascular congestion at the moment? Nope, not unless he had marked RV dysfunction. Um, you know, anyone who's got, you know, moderate to normal, um, moderately dysfunction or, or, or normal RV function um, should not crash our blood pressure with a loss of a little bit of preload because this preload is actually already excessive um, at this point. So no, I wouldn't normally expect that. Okay. Um, so you go ahead and start diuresing him and you're able to get perhaps a couple of liters of fluid off him during the course of the day. And there's a little bit more variation in his IVC by the time you're getting out of there. You leave him intubated um, and you sign out to the night team. And when you come in the next day, what you hear is that his blood pressure again fell overnight. And they responded by some adjustments in his pressors and giving more fluid. And by the time you get back in, he's now on norepinephrine at eight, uh, 0.8 mics per kilo. Uh, he's on 0.05 units of vasopressin. And with everything he's gotten here and there, he ends up another five liters or so positive, mostly through crystalloid. He's putting out about 10 cc's an hour, an hour of urine. Uh, when you go see him, he's grossly anisarchic. His abdomen is starting to look taut. Uh, on the ventilator, he's now up to 90% FiO2. His PEEP is 12. Um, he's saturating 92% on all of that. And his MAP now is about 55. Okay. So um, one, we need teaching rounds at the bedside for the night team. Um, clearly are struggling with their hemodynamics and shock management. Um, number two, we do uh, a full echo hemodynamic assessment again and see what's going on. I presume it's going to be even more congested. Uh, give what happened. We stop any fluids that are going in, um, reassesses RV, LV, probably look now at probably putting in a PA catheter. Uh, and most importantly, let's look at that belly, measure the pressure, look for a pocket of fluid that might be drained. Uh, because if I've got a pocket of fluid and I can transduce an actual pressure, I prefer that even to the bladder pressure. 
Um, so there we go. That's my first five to 10 minutes with this patient. The nurses measure a bladder pressure, which is about 20. You don't paralyze him, but it's right in that ballpark. And then looking in his abdomen again, his uh, IVC is now 25 millimeters and it's plethoric. And the hepatic veins, the S wave is still less than the D, but the S is actually now upright. And, um, and the portal veins, you now see to and fro pulsatility. Um, and while you're in there, you do note ascites, but um, you don't really see a pocket that looks like you could readily tap it. At this point, um, for one, then I know that the uh, if my IVC is big and plethoric, then um, I know that my IVC is not being crushed by the intraabdominal pressure. So it makes the intraabdominal pressure a little bit um, a little bit lower than my right atrial pressure. Yeah, like I said, I think it's time to put a PA catheter in and, and get some real values. Okay. And the, the reason that you would consider this one is because you are starting to suspect this kind of right heart dysfunction in the setting of this otherwise kind of multifactorial shock. Yeah. I, I think as soon as you're getting some RV versus LV dysfunction um, and you've got a sick patient, then I think it's worth being able to to quantitate some things and to be able to follow some things that are that are may change given whatever interventions I'm going to make on his hemodynamics. Um, now, much of this can be done at the bedside, but it's not ideal and it's maybe difficult to track and follow. And um, you're certainly going to start diuresing, as you said. Um, would you feel there's any role for albumin in a patient like this? In a patient who has venous congestion? Definitely not. Um, I think um, we have someone who's who's got, you know, a full right side. Um, what we want to do is take fluid off, not put any in. Do, do, are you a believer that albumin is going to have any effect in drawing fluid out of the interstitium into the intravascular space? That's a really good and complex question. Um, and I think as far as I'm concerned, the the jury may still be out on it. If you speak to guys like Tom Woodcock, who's you know written and, and done some really interesting work on this, um, they would say definitely not. And I think it's clear enough that it, at the very least, it doesn't work in the way that we traditionally learn that it does in terms of quote unquote sucking fluid back into the interstitium. Uh, and when they looked at the uh, the distal uh, capillary beds, I think it was shown that you don't actually have reabsorption at that point and the fluid from the interstitium that comes back actually comes back via your lymphatics and then your thoracic duct and goes right into your right atrium um, so that any intervention that you would do that would end up raising your right atrial pressure would be counterproductive to that. Um, and it's also been shown that albumin actually in leaky states leaks out and sequesters fluid in that interstitium. So in someone who's full, um, I definitely do not use it. Now, someone who's, you know, who's empty and you want to maintain uh, diuresis to take out that interstitial fluid, I still use it like that. And empirically, it seems that it does work, you know. Um, some would argue that you could, it would work just as well, maybe better with no, um, no albumin. But um, I still reserve um, in my practice some albumin use in that. Uh, my albumin use has radically dropped in the last decade. So there you go. That's... Um, that's my two cents about albumin and fluids. Oh, that's interesting. So um, your concern, other than the fact that it may actually leak out, is that um, you don't actually 
think most of the fluid in our tissues is going to be returning to the vascular space kind of through these classic startling forces. It's mostly coming back through lymphatic flow. And if you increase the right atrial pressure, you're actually decreasing the gradient for that flow. Correct. If you do think that there is potentially some abdominal compartment syndrome, or at least elevated intra-abdominal pressure, does that affect your vexus exam? Sure. So as soon as you're going to exceed uh, your venous pressures, you're going to start affecting it. So if my intra-abdominal pressure is higher than my um, the pressure in my IVC, uh, then yes, I can get an artificially small IVC, um, which might mislead me to think that there's you know no venous congestion. I may get um, artificially uh, venous compressions, or your renal veins may get compressed, and you and my I may get outflow limitation and venous congestion and kidneys just related to that. I mean, that's the basis of renal dysfunction in uh, abdominal compartment syndrome. Um, as well, I'm getting decreased venous return. So in the presence of, you know, really elevated intra-abdominal pressures, you're, you've, you can't really interpret the vexus the same way. You got to decompress first. All right. So with this patient in front of you, um, you diurese him pretty aggressively and he actually does respond and you're able to avoid putting him on uh, hemodialysis. Uh, and over the next couple of days, um, you take off several liters of fluid. And when you come back in a couple of days later, what you're now finding on your exam is his IVC is about 20 millimeters and uh, it's still plethoric, but on in your hepatic veins, the uh, S wave is now greater than the D wave. And in your portal veins, you now see continuous flow. Um, there are, if you look at the lungs, there are perhaps mild B lines, but his oxygen requirement is now down to 40% on the ventilator. Um, he's still maybe two to three liters positive for fluid if you add it all up, this admission. Um, but his urine output is still about 10 cc's an hour, and his creatinine is now up to 2.5. Now, is this still a patient that you think needs to have fluid taken off him? Well, if his portal vein is no longer pulsatile, and here's where I might really start looking at um, the intrarenal venous Doppler to sort of convince myself that taking fluid is not necessary. Um, but if this portal vein is normal flow and his abdominal pressure is okay, then he probably doesn't need fluid taken off. Now, to be really clean about this, if I've got my PA catheter in, I'm going to look at my CVP. If my CVP is is over 8 or 10, then I'll take fluid off uh, because there's a pretty sharp up curve of renal dysfunction. If you're looking at, you know, when your CVP gets over 6 to 8, then you've got a, a sharp upcurve of, uh, of renal dysfunction. I don't think that would explain everything in the absence of portal vein pulsatility, but certainly a factor that's not helping. So you would, re- you really would trust your CVP in a case like this, perhaps even over your, you know, solid organ Doppler studies and things. A high CVP with renal dysfunction, you would certainly diurese further. Probably, I don't. I think I just put them all together. I'm not saying it's going to be over the rest because you know there's also just a you know got to make sure that technically speaking, the CVP measurement is really well done, you know, um, and a few centimeters of difference of height of the transducer or a little kink in it could really mess things up. So, um, so I'm not going to necessarily just take that. I think, I believe in, in medicine, we, we, we need a lot more redundancy. You know, we deal with people's lives. And if you look at the, the safest, you know, industry in, 
in the world is aeronautics and they have like 10 different ways to tell you whether your fuel is going up or down and your pressure is going up and down and we you know people tend to be a little more religious in medicine and try to grab onto one thing that they like and then just that's it that's all i think you need redundancy in the systems and and more robustness in our assessments so i would like to take the decision based on my intrarenal venous doppler my portal vein my cvp um and the whole thing so do you routinely transduce cvp in general though even without a swan just off of your central line yeah okay i just ask because some people have become really quite skeptical about cvps in general you know what Sadly, that's the same people who are skeptical or just the same the same disease that makes people skeptical of the IVC is just that people look at it as some kind of a, oh, I want to know about volume responsiveness and volume status, you know, and have a really simple recipe approach to it. And that's just not how it is. So you, you got to piece it together. And uh, there's a lot of good information in the CVP and the CVP tracing. Uh, you know, if you're looking at hepatic vein Dopplers, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at your CVP tracing. Uh, it's the same thing. You just call it different waves, different names for different areas of the wave. It's the same thing. Um, so there's good information there. Um, and the same thing with the IVC. I mean, I, I put up a, you know, one of my lectures from the Stowe uh, last year where I said, you know, my good friend, the IVC, it never lies to you. You just have to ask it the right question to be able to interpret the answer. Same thing with the CVP. So if you have a reliable CVP, um, would you feel like that kind of tells a story as far as that central venous you know, pressure and then that the hepatic vein or the IVC on ultrasound may not tell you much more, but something like the portal veins or the renal uh, arteries and uh, veins, they perhaps do add further information because you're kind of looking on the other side of the organ. Yeah, that's pretty much it. All right. Well, that I think is a really interesting approach to this sort of patient. I mean, I think the majority of clinicians would either not even be considering taking off a lot of fluid in someone who is still kind of floridly in shock like this, or they would at most be really kind of delicate with it. But I think that's because we often don't have a really clear metric to follow to really know where we're at with it. And I I think if you can develop a lot of faculty with this VEXIS exam, that may be the solution. Um, It just, there's technically some challenges to it. Do you have any resources you'd recommend for people who are trying to get into this? So before I answer that, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit and, and tell you that oftentimes you see these patients hemodynamically improve when you take fluid off because you're, you're improving their RV, you know, LV synchronicity. You're often decreasing uh, gut leak from your elevated RV pressures. So you're decreasing your cytokine activations and things like that. Um, and, uh, and, and so that actually helps your hemodynamics more often than not. Um, and then in terms of resources, um, I mean, I think searching through um, searching through my blog, Thinking Critical Care, uh, you'll find a lot of discussions around this, especially in the last like year and a half, two years, which help flesh out and, and put a lot of perspective on these things. Um, Katie Whisker did a nice little vidcast showing how to get the views. Um, I think... I had put up one of the workshops at André Deneau, which I've got to mention, all this stuff comes from uh, the amazing work that André Deneau, along with William Bobien-Souligny, have been doing at the Heart Institute in Montreal. And they're really the ones who, who put Portal Vein on the, on the acute care map. Um, so they deserve really the, the real credit for this stuff. We just uh, disseminate the information and, and put it out into, into broad practice. Um, 
so I think definitely it's worth reading all their papers and, and we can certainly I'm sure put this up in, in the show notes. Um, at our, as you're coming, Brandon, you'll see uh, at the next HNR, we'll have a whole bunch of workshops on uh, Vexus and, uh, and point of care ultrasound as well. Um, and I've been planning to do a, a vidcast as well with some, with some clips and some videos on, on how to do it. And uh, hopefully uh, I'll get around to it. Okay, very good. Yeah, and we'll put links to um, all of that material in the the notes for this episode. All right, very good. Um, Philippe, any other final thoughts or things that you'd like us to think about going forward? I think the important thing is looking at, at your when you're assessing, you know, your shock patients is really having a, a really holistic approach and trying to piece all the all the little pieces together in order to come up with it and not try to rely on, on any one thing and, and certainly not try to rely on, on something foolish like a fluid protocol or something like that. That's really the worst you can do. Um, and I think that extrapolates to a lot of critical care, you know, RCTs, which I think, you know, an RCT tells you what is best for most people, uh, most patients. But the problem is we only deal with one patient at a time and, you know, a, a nice RCT finding might completely misguide you and the one patient that's in front of you. If he's got like, whether it's, you know, any different types of pathology, bad RV failure, then everything might be completely off. Um, so it's important to, to tailor a therapy. And I think the RCTs are also important, but what they should be is, is hypothesis generating and something that, you know, you have in the back of your mind, um, and then you try to see if your patient fits that that approach or that whatever finding you have from from study X. All right, Philippe. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really interesting. No problem. All right. Well, I'm back again with Brian Bowling. And Brian, what do you think about all this? So it's really interesting, uh, especially to get his take on things like albumin and just the assessment of the congested patient in general. Um, I, I have not, uh, I have to confess, I have not really done much with the Vexus, uh, although I'm going to, going to be practicing this week. Yeah. I feel like there's, there's kind of two things that it gives us, you know, if you're someone like me and perhaps you who has not been doing much of this and is not sure kind of where it falls into our usual algorithm for these patients. I think the first thing is just the, the idea that, you know, serious venous congestion is kind of causing harm to our patients in the sense of affecting their organ perfusion and impacting the actual gradients to flow across these solid organs like the liver and the kidneys, which I think otherwise you look at these patients and you say, well, they have a lot of fluid on them, but uh, you know, I'm not sure I care as long as it's not impacting the things we look at more typically, such as their lungs. You know, they're oxygenating okay. Um, maybe they're making urine, uh, but this kind of reminds you that that may not tell the whole story. And then the other thing is just giving you a quantifiable way to actually measure that effect, I guess. Like he was saying earlier, you take a patient like he first got out of the OR and clearly they're you know, somewhat hypervolemic, but are they hypervolemic in the sense that they have fluid, but it's okay, or in the sense that you really need to act on it now to manage them? And again, I think without this, I would only be looking at perhaps their lungs to get a sense for that, right. you know, if they were oxygenating. Right. Well, and I know, uh, I, I was a little surprised that he was quick to diarrhea so quickly uh, after the operating room, because I know that's, that's sort of a big no-no amongst surgeons. Um, a lot of my surgeons would probably not be happy with me if I gave somebody a slug of furosemide 
on post up day zero. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's just, you need to kind of divide in your mind the fluid status with their human dynamics. And of course there is a relationship there as we know, but uh, we also know or should know that in a lot of these patients who are, you know, very much to the right of that, you know, that starling curve, um, taking fluid off them is not going to negatively affect their human dynamics until you get quite a ways into it. Right. And that's, again, I guess gives you some way to help quantify that. Right. Well, and I think that goes to what he was saying about uh, talking about the RCTs and how everything needs to be kind of tailored. And I think even this don't give diuretics on post-up day zero is sort of a gospel that we've latched onto that may or may not apply to every patient. And so I think this, uh, this assessment that we're doing um, is a good way to guide whether it's appropriate for the individual patient in front of us or not. Yeah. I also think that um, it was interesting to hear that he still feels like there's an important role for even PA catheters or even the CVP or kind of a, a, a multimodal approach to assessing this, even though he's you know, kind of specifically interested in these ultrasound studies. Yeah. I guess kind of the more information, the better, as long as you have a, a structured way of looking at it all. So you don't end up anchoring on one of those data points, putting more trust in it than it deserves. I mean, if all you have is, say, a CVP, then I think you're not going to be making the most reliable decisions. But if you have that and you have perhaps other numbers from a SWAN and you have your echocardiography and you have these kind of solid organ studies, um, putting that all together, then maybe you have a much more robust sense for where the patient's at fluid-wise, how much you have to worry about it, how much they'll tolerate and diuresis and so on. Yeah, and I think that was good for him to hear him say that about the looking at different modes and stuff because I was going to jump in and, and say I, I'm not a huge believer in the CVP, absolute number of the CVP. Um, I do sort of look at trends with it, uh, and that's sort of how I treat IVC ultrasound as well. Uh, but I think it makes more sense when he talks about, you know, look at the IVC, look at the CVP, look at everything kind of in total uh, rather than just rely on, uh, you know, I hooked up a CVP tracing and it was two, so the patient needs volume or it was eight, so the patient needs diuresis or whatever. And I'm definitely going to start some more experimentation with this. What I've found so far just with kind of cursory use is it's very straightforward, obviously, to find the IVC. Everyone can do that. And the hepatic veins are not much more difficult. Um, the portal veins are a little bit more challenging because they're, they're smaller targets and just locating them is a little bit of an initial challenge because it's not really part of the everyday ultrasound that a lot of us learn. Right. But it's not so difficult in a lot of patients. Looking at the renal vasculature is is definitely an, another level. So I was I was glad to hear him say that perhaps in the majority of patients you don't absolutely need it because if if you needed that then I think uh, this would be more limited in utility. But it really sounds like the portal veins are are where the money is for most of this. So if if you can focus on getting decent at that, then I think that could be something you drop into your ultrasound assessments without needing to you know spend a huge amount of time mastering all of this. Right. Uh, and I think that's probably one of the problems that people have with IVC assessment in general, right? Is, um, you know, it's easy to find the IVC, but where do we measure it? And how do you ensure that you're looking at it at the right angle and you're cutting it down the middle as opposed to obliquely? Um, you know, and I think that's, you know, the, these sort of things become very operator dependent, uh, and so I think it's it's important that we you know we have good training, but also the the kind of sort of multi multimodal approach like he talked about, um, I think is good, right? If I look at an IVC and I think 
this patient looks you know overloaded, uh, but I look at their echo uh, and they seem to be empty uh, or clinically they look empty, then I maybe have a little less faith in my assessment of the IVC, not necessarily in the, the ability of the IVC to tell me something, but in my assessment at, at that point. Yeah. I mean, I always, I look at these studies where people assess the you know, the test characteristics of any one of these studies. And they say, well, it's, you know, so, so, and I think about everything else we do. I mean, what are the test characteristics of any one data point? I mean, what are the test characteristics of a white count or of a, you know, palpating the abdomen or, you know, any one question in your history? I mean, it's all pretty poor, but you combine it all, you kind of troubleshoot, you rule some things out that are outliers and the, the overall constellation kind of gets you in the right ballpark. So as long as you have a kind of critical approach to looking at your data and not glomming onto one thing, then it's sort of all good. Maybe some things are so unreliable, they're not even worth doing, but I, I think that's more the exception than the rule. Sure. All right, Brian. Well, this has been super interesting. Um, we'll try to keep everyone in the loop about the stuff that Philippe gets up to. And uh, I guess I'll see you next month. Yeah, see you.